Welcome to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartities, where we help design and construction firms navigate sales and leverage marketing to win more projects. Here are your hosts, Katie Cash and Judy Sparks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I am excited to be here today talking with Larry Callahan, the Chief Executive Officer at Patillo Industrial Real Estate. Patillo is one of the largest privately held industrial development operations based in the southeastern United States. They specialize in the development, acquisition, and management of industrial buildings. So we are really excited to talk with you today, Larry, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to share your thoughts and opinions with our listeners. Well, thank you, Katie. Looking forward to it. Great. So, you know, as we get started in today's discussion, maybe you could share just a little bit more about Patillo and maybe what your firm does, how many facilities you guys look at developing each year, maybe where those tend to be and, and anything like that, that you might just provide some context behind your, your particular company and what you do. Um, well, thank you. We um, are fairly well known in the industrial world. Uh, we're based here in Atlanta, uh, but we are now invested uh, all over the southeast and uh, we're as far, far north as Louisville, Kentucky. We're in Nashville. Um, we're obviously got a lot in uh, Georgia, um, based around Atlanta. Uh, we are uh, actively investing in Greenville-Spartanburg area, which is near the BMW plant there, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, which is an economy that's being driven by major investments uh, by large companies like Boeing. Mercedes and Volvo. We have manufacturing plants there. Um, we're in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, and we're poised to move into other locations uh, once we identify them as outperform locations. Uh, so our company, you know, started in 1950. So uh, we're actually closing in on uh, 70 years old. Uh, the company has uh, been through a lot of evolution over time. Uh, but um, we've been involved in the creation of um, over a thousand industrial buildings at this point. So we've done a lot in the industrial arena. It's uh, the area that we know, and we're just going to keep doing it. Well, that's great. You know, it's I love that you shared that background with us. And I mean, wow, 70 years kind of focusing on one vertical market of industrial development. I bet you've seen a lot of things come and go. I bet you're kind of anticipating the next big thing in terms of trends and development. Could you share with us maybe what that economic forecast might look like for industrial development across the Southeast? You know, as we sit here today going into the fall of 2019, what are you guys looking at and what are you expecting? Well, the industrial market has changed uh, dramatically. Um, probably the the uh, early stages of it we saw in the 90s, but it really accelerated when you got around the year 2000. A, a push, as I describe it, um, for the, the base of industrial buildings uh, to move to a different uh, scale. And um, I refer to it as we're describing to our team as the move has been to go to taller and younger. Um, the, the scale of industrial buildings, uh, when I started in the business back in 1985, a 100,000 square foot building was a very large building. Now, a very large building is something over a million square feet. That's a big change. There's not that many, yeah, there's not that many businesses. If you're in the automotive business, then you know cars have changed and a lot has changed in safety features and things of that nature. 
Uh, but cars are still about the same size, you know, maybe a little smaller for a lot of them, uh, but but not dramatically. I mean, a big building is now 10 times the size it was when I started. And it's not just uh, the footprint of the building. Uh, they're substantially taller. Um, large buildings in the million square foot range um, are uh, now frequently pushing up near 40 feet as the clear height inside the building. And uh, that's, that's a major shift, too, because when I first started, it was common to see buildings that were 20 feet tall and 100,000 square feet, maybe. Um, so 100,000 square feet is a, a building that is, you know, roughly the size of, you know, say, two football fields under roof. So that's a pretty big building. But again, now the standard is a million square feet uh, for large fulfillment centers, for e-commerce buildings things like that and so that's closer to you know say 20 or 22 uh, football fields under one roof so those are very large buildings. what's really driving the um, the size of the new industrial buildings is it consolidation in terms of having you know one major location is it just the complexity of the equipment is it automation what's kind of driving that new million square foot facility well, e-commerce is the, the biggest user of these, these big buildings. Um, the, there's a huge transformation going on in uh, the utilization of, of commercial space uh, that's designed for the delivery of products to customers. Uh, we used to call that process uh, retail. <laughs> sure. You know, the, it's not that retail has gone away. Retail has moved toward, uh, they call it experiential. Uh, trying to give you a good reason why you need to go to the store and actually touch and pick out what it is that you're going to uh, be putting on. Um, some people won't buy shoes online because they don't know what they're going to feel like on their foot. Uh, so they actually go out and try them on before they buy them. Uh, so, you know, th there's things like that. But there are a whole lot of products now that the way that people uh, receive them is they either on their phone or at their computer somewhere go to a online store, whether it's uh, Amazon or, you know, Walmart or Home Depot or whoever they might uh, decide that they want to go shopping with, and they click on it, and it shows up at their door, and they don't think about how it got there, and there is a huge transformation in how it got there. It used to be that, you know, you walked into a store, and if you didn't find what you wanted, you walked onto another store, and maybe you got in your car and you drove to another place. Now you just click on it. But where does it actually come from? It doesn't actually, uh, generally speaking, come from a mall. Uh, there's not a 2,000-square-foot store that receives your order and, and sends it out. Um, it's all coming from large fulfillment centers uh, that are massive operations uh, that have lots of products in there. And, um, and they are filling your order as quickly as possible. But they're doing all that in industrial buildings. So the demand for e-commerce, the sales growth in e-commerce, is growing at, you know, depending on whose numbers you look at, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% a year uh, in an economy that's only growing about 2% a year. So e-commerce is uh, dramatically changing the landscape, and they are um, uh, requiring a number, of, uh, a large number of new industrial buildings every year. And the reason that they tend to be new is there's not a accumulated uh, inventory 
of million square foot buildings from 20 years ago that are filling the e-commerce needs. Yeah. There weren't industrial buildings of that size. In fact, if you go back to, I believe it was 2005, uh, in that time frame, uh, Amazon was basically a virtual company in many respects. They were receiving orders and getting them shipped from other places. And they had about three uh, of these large fulfillment centers uh, in the country, in the United States, uh, and back in that time frame. Well, now the latest count that I've seen is they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 facilities uh, that they're using to try to uh, basically be the supply chain that delights you by getting the product to you, you know, within a day or a day or two. And they'd like to eventually be able to have you click on things and they can get it to you within a matter of hours. In order to do that, they have to have huge networks of uh, buildings and facilities and partners. And they're more and more pushing into being, um, in addition to uh, an online marketplace, in addition to being a huge provider of, um, of, of Internet services, uh, they're also becoming a delivery company. So they have all these facilities and they are more and more pushing to uh, have the, uh, the whole supply chain under their control. Um, everybody's aware that the post office delivers products for Amazon and uh, UPS delivers products for Amazon. And until recently, FedEx delivered products for Amazon. But FedEx decided not to renew and not to keep doing that, um, which is, I think, reflective of the thinking that Amazon may actually be competing with them. Um, and they're competing, in my opinion, with UPS also. Now, UPS, about 10% of their um, uh, business is uh, delivering for Amazon. But Amazon is building the infrastructure to directly compete with what UPS does. Uh, Amazon has got something in the neighborhood of 60 planes that it now operates out of a hub that it has created in the Cincinnati area. Um, it has recently purchased 20,000 Sprinter vans and is encouraging uh, both existing employees and other people to set up delivery services using their software and um, and tying into their systems, but the independent companies delivering for them. 20,000 vans is a lot of vans. That's a lot of vans. But I mean, if I mean, I'm just one consumer and I know that I order on Amazon probably at least once a week. You know, there's something that I decide that I have to have and I don't want to go to the store for it or I don't want to wait for another retailer to send it to me in two days or three days or even a week. So I'll just order it on Amazon. And you're right, it's there the next day. And I don't, I, um, I appreciate their efficiency. It's kind of also spurred this expectation, I think, in the average consumer's mind that all retailers will do that. So do you see other retailers kind of following suit and that's kind of spurring the addition of this industrial kind of boom we're seeing right now, keeping up with Amazon? Oh, absolutely. We are in a world economy and a world market and you are either world-class or you will be run over. So uh, yes, it has, has raised the game of everybody. And, you know, for a while it looked like Amazon was going to take over the world and um, they are certainly setting the standard for a lot of things, but uh, there are other providers that are very much in this game. Um, you know, everybody, if you're at Amazon, your issue is you didn't have a physical infrastructure. 
And that's why they've gone up to the point now where they have 400 facilities, most of which I believe are leased. Uh, I'm sure they own some, but most of them are leased. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you compare that to somebody like Home Depot, who uh, did not start as an internet-based company, but now has become a major player uh, in, uh, in e-commerce. And uh, uh, Home Depot has the advantage of having several thousand stores that can be used to help with the delivery process. Um, so the, the, the stores like Walmart and Home Depot and many others um, have their own e-commerce strategies. But those involve the integration of selling directly out of the store and selling through the e-commerce uh, system. And they've created their own multi-million uh, of multiple buildings in the million square foot range, establishing a network of e-commerce delivery. And, uh, and they've also integrated that now, and they're all working to integrate the delivery systems to include deliveries directly from the stores. So that's an advantage that they've got. But the world of, of, of retail and the world of industrial um, have um, intersected in a way that they never did before. And it is when beneath the wings of anybody who's in the development business, um, in, in the industrial development business in particular right now. Um, it's creating a lot of opportunity. Um, it's creating a tight market. Um, and it's creating a need for new space to be created. Um, and it's, this new space is significantly different from the space that existed in the past. So you can't just fill this new need by putting, um, you know, somebody who needs a million square foot fulfillment center uh, that's 40 foot clear height. You can't solve that problem by putting them in, you know, a uh, hundred thousand square foot building that's 20 foot clear that was built 35, 40 years ago. Yeah. So it's driving a transformation in the business. Well, and maybe let's talk about that a little bit more, you know, as I'm, listening to you talk and I'm kind of thinking of the major markets, you know, you, you mentioned some, some pretty sizable markets in which, you know, Patillo has serviced in the past, you know, Atlanta, of course, you mentioned Nashville, you mentioned a handful in Florida, a handful across the, the Carolinas as well. But if these, you know, your clients are looking for a million square foot facilities, I have to imagine that's a pretty sizable land acquisition ask. Where do you find a million square foot, um, you know, land parcel these days when, you know, I keep hearing that there, there's really not that much left to develop and everything's going to brownfield sites. So what does that kind of process look like as you're trying to develop those new uh, facilities for a million square foot facilities? Plus, I mean, on top of that, you have to factor in um, parking for the staff that's going to work there as well as loops for the trucks and everything, correct? Like it's not just the building. It's got to be a much larger footprint for the overall development. Yeah, that, that's a key question, and it's uh, it's a hard one to answer, and I'll, I'll answer it on two levels. But uh, first of all, just trying to find sites. Um, the not every building getting built is a million square feet. There, there's still, if you look at like the average building that's getting built these days, is you know closer to two hundred thousand square feet, maybe two fifty somewhere in that range. Um, and and so those are still pretty big buildings. Uh, you know, we're talking a building that's you know, maybe um, five or six football fields under one roof. So uh, there's a lot of activity in that range right now. And, um, and but, but even those buildings do require big chunks of land. 
Um, as a company, one of the things that we have done for many years is accumulate prime industrial sites in many locations. So we own literally thousands of acres of, uh, of industrial land uh, that is already zoned and, and ready for this type of development. So, but we don't have an unlimited supply. Nobody does. And uh, this has been going on for a while, so there does start to become a shortage of, uh, of sites because a site that can accommodate uh, one of these million square foot buildings, and some of them get bigger than that, um, but there, there tend to be sites in the area of 100 acres to accommodate both the building uh, and the parking and employee parking that go, goes with it. Um, so finding a 100 acre site that doesn't have a stream through it or uh, you know uh, uh, a utility easement running that can't be moved or something like that is not easy. Right. And that's, that's layer number one. So uh, so so yes, it is a a concern. Uh, but uh, people keep finding those sites. But the, the historical answer in terms of where industrial went, industrial tended to move further out from the core of a city and uh, tended to go to farmland and convert farmland into industrial buildings. And especially over the last, you know, 60, 65 years, they tended to be located close to the interstates because it's all about distribution and... Yeah, ease of access, yeah. So, you know, the ideal place to put an industrial building uh, was, uh, you know, an exit or two beyond where all the activity is um, and, and convert farmland to that and ideally convert it uh, as close as possible uh, to, to the interstate. Um, so now, and, and, and yes, it is a problem trying to find the next site for the next million square foot building, and it's an issue all over the country. So, um, so that's one issue. But then the next issue, which makes it even more um, significant, is that um, the big push with e-commerce is now everyone has figured out how to take orders and you know delight the customer by the selection that you have and then delight them again by quickly getting the product to them. That's what Amazon Prime has been all about. And there are now 100 million people in the U.S. that are Amazon Prime members. So they're all there paying a fee in order to uh, be able to get things quicker and less expensively uh, from a shipping standpoint. So now the big push is how do you keep uh, improving? The improvement is all about quickness to get things to people. So the only way you can do that, if you have, say, a national distribution center uh, you know, somewhere in the country and you try to take all orders there and ship all over the country, you know, you can get things to people within two or three days, you know, pretty consistently. But if you want to try to get things to people in a matter of hours or, or if nothing else, the next day after you click on something, if you want to do that, you've got to place that product close to where the people are. Sure. So as I said, historically, industrial tended to be on the outskirts. There are people that really don't even know where all the industrial is. They'll operate in the city and come and go and you know, ride the train or be on the main highways and they're hardly ever seen industrial because it's always a little bit off um, the sides of, of things and uh, not, not usually in the center of town. Well, now the ideal location for these distribution centers would be right near the heart of town. Well, that's very difficult because the heart of town is both very expensive 
um, and probably already developed as something else. So the, the, the availability of land tends to be greater the further you move away from the heart of the city. And the demand right now, uh, the ideal demand, is, uh, is as close as possible to the center of a city for distribution purposes. The results of that um, have not played out already. It's going to take some time before it all uh, is, is clear how that works. But um, some things that have happened include uh, multi-story warehouses being placed, uh, and, and most warehouses are one floor. Even right. if they're 40-foot clear, it's one floor. They may have a mezzanine level installed that's uh, made out of metal, usually, um, and racking systems and all these things, but uh, they rarely have a second floor. But they started doing this kind of thing in Asia because of price of land near big cities. One thing is happening. The other thing is happening is redevelopment, and that includes such as um, you know malls, whole malls. You know, there's there have been malls in the United States that have gone dormant, uh, part of the, the retail restructuring. Oh yeah, part of Some that. Of those have been actually torn down. Yeah, they've either torn down or repurposed into in, uh, fulfillment centers for e-commerce. You're still actually, in a, it's kind of an interesting flow because it's um, it, it's a repurposing for for um, the same original intent. It was how do you get products to customers? Well, it used to be you opened your door in a mall and the customers walked in. Now they're clicking on something somewhere and you just make it show up on their front door. Uh, so it's a very um, significant shift, uh, but the repurposing of various sites that are close to town, so I think industrial is going to be part of the redevelopment of uh, older parts of, of major cities uh, in order to be able to be close to the customers. I, I wouldn't disagree with that either. You know, we've seen a lot of I think that's probably uh, one of the biggest challenges facing the commercial real estate market these days is trying to figure out how to effectively utilize what used to be those large strip shopping centers, large malls, and and repurposing them so that they, you know, become more part of the community asset. And it sounds like there's there's a play here to kind of repurpose them for industrial developments where it makes sense. Maybe um, while I have you on today's episode, I'd love to pivot just a little bit and talk more about you know, Patillo Industrial Real Estate. And for our listeners out there that are architects, engineers, program managers, or or contractors that might want to explore, you know, being one of your partners and helping you develop or build or design your next wave of industrial projects, what that might look like. So could you share a little bit about kind of the process that your company uses in terms of um, entertaining client meetings with architects, engineers, and contractors. If there's any pre-qualification process, if you what that contracting um, partnership might look like, if it's a period of time or project by project, can you talk a little bit to that? Well, um, one of the things I like having um, in, in in our company, and uh, also um, when we're dealing with outside folks, is I like people that are team oriented because uh, the development process is absolutely a, a team-oriented process. Uh, it is a, a process that involves uh, a lot of people, uh, starting with the community in which something is happening. Um, you know, they have to, it, you always have to remember that the community has to grant you permission to do whatever it is that you're planning to do. Uh, there is a zoning process, there is a building 
um, plan review process. So the community is always uh, part of uh, you know the process of creating things, and then the team of people that that get involved in actually executing the plan uh, is uh, is is substantial, um, and it varies from place to place. Uh, people have expertise uh, both in construction and design. Uh, that is gained by doing things in a particular location. So uh, it's hard to find uh, any one firm that is the the answer for every situation. Uh, we currently work with, I think my count is something like 13 construction companies that we work with, and we've got a, a stable of architects uh, and engineers that we work with, depending on what the, the subject is. And um, that's a huge part. They, they share in our success. In fact, our success is a byproduct of their expertise and their commitment and, and their willingness to work together as a team. So, um, so every project is um, a process where we try to figure who is the best fit for what is needed here. Uh, so whether we're talking design or selection of a construction company, um, our job is uh, at the start to figure out, one, what is we're going to try to build here is either a, um, a speculative building or a build to suit for one of our customers. Um, who is best suited to do this project? So when you've been in the business as long as we have, you know the major players. And, you know, sometimes there's a new one coming up and we entertain that also. But uh, we're, we know the major players in the business. And we've already established relationships with them. And, uh, and then we allow them to bid on the opportunity to do uh, what is going to be done. Um, most notably and most of the time, we have three people that are involved uh, in the bidding process. Uh, so generally, it's selecting the architect that's going to be involved in it first. And they help us with the process of uh, then... Uh, uh, creating plans with which we can prepare a very good set of uh, estimates as to you know what this is going to cost, and then we decide who we're going to work with and how we're going to put the team together. So uh, over time, the architects and the engineers and the construction companies all get to know each other, and they they bump into each other in different permutations over and over again. Uh, so, but but our process is. Very like any other uh, professional industrial developer, we are uh, looking at who we're working with right now. We're studying how they're performing, and uh, and then we we love doing repeat business with people. Sure, um, and they all work hard to earn that. So, um, and then again, it's a selection process for us, um, where we are, are always trying to find uh, both the low cost and high quality. Uh, that, that our customers expect, and uh, so that's that's the process that we go through. Are you typically, um, when it comes to construction and, and specifically, are you typically hard bidding the project, or are you ever engaging, you know, say in in design build, or you know, engaging a construction manager that brings in some pre-construction expertise, or is it typically you hire an architect, go through design, and then you bid it out for work? Yes, um, that's what we tend to do. Okay. Um, we. We've got our own construction management in-house, uh, so uh, trained professionals that are very good at what they do and have lots of experience and have built millions and millions of square feet of industrial buildings. So um, they they're the ones that sort that out, and then we we manage the process uh, internally. 
Well, and I would imagine if you are looking for either a design partner or construction partner for your, your standard industrial development, you know, that 100,000 to maybe 300,000 square foot facility, there's a certain set of qualifications that you're looking for for that partner. But then when you start looking at the million square feet and larger, I would imagine that's a different pool of contenders because there's an added layer of risk when you start getting to projects of that size and scale. Is that correct? Or is it kind of, you know, it's four walls and a ceiling, no matter how you scale it, big or small? Um, I would say that we have the same players. Uh, most of the buildings that we're building are in that 200,000 or above range. Okay. Um, and the players that we deal with in that size range are but either from a design standpoint, engineering standpoint, or construction standpoint, all the firms that we're dealing with are capable of scaling it up from there to a million square feet with, uh, uh, with gusto and enthusiasm. <laughs> I love that with gusto. Okay. Well, I, um, I've appreciated you, your time today. I'm just going to recap for the audience kind of based on, on my understanding of our discussion. If I've, if I've misquoted you in any of these, do chime in. But, you know, talking through the industrial market today, really what we're looking at is a convergence of both retail industrial coming together really to support e-commerce. And that's really what's spurring up a lot of the new developments. And some of these new developments are kind of getting on that a million square foot or larger in scale, roughly a hundred acre site development, but the average remains in that 200, 250,000 square foot facility. Um, really the, the tenant needs, you know, your Amazon needs, your Home Depot, those guys, um, the last mile delivery and, and this rapid technology evolution are what's reshaping the warehouse design needs in today's marketplace and kind of determining what those facilities look like, driving the size of it out, driving the height of it up, whether or not it includes additional office space and whatnot. And then also an, another trend is that location preferences are starting to change where you're, you're moving from siting all of your industrial developments on the outskirts of town, kind of in that what used to be the rural farmlands and kind of bringing it closer to the heart of the city and expecting to see that continue really as you continue to support that expedited delivery expectation for distribution direct to consumer as we see e-commerce to continue to evolve. And when it comes to working with developers like yourself at Patillo and, and others in the industrial market, it really is about finding partners that are a true team player because the, the scope of industrial development is a team sport and you need people at the table with you that are invested and engaged in the project, engaging in the community and moving forward, kind of focusing on that end goal. And if they're working with you, they can expect to have roughly three people involved in that selection uh, process, looking at finding the right partner, the right fit for the project. And, and like you mentioned, you know, building that relationship together project over project and kind of learning the nuances and, and building some synergies of working on projects together over and over again. Is, is that kind of a, a good summary for today's discussion? I, I thought that was a good summary. The, the one thing I will say is that, that that push and that desire to be as close as possible to, um, to the customers for, for e-commerce last mile delivery is, uh, is an ideal that is very hard to meet. Right. Um, both from a cost perspective and the simple availability. Uh, there's only so many million square foot sites uh, that anybody has control of that's, you know, that's ready to develop. Um, and there's even fewer of them the closer you get into where the population lives. So it's going to be something that there is a strong demand for, but it's going to be 
it's going to be limited. And you know, the the one of the prices of of doing this is you know the price of land keeps moving up. If it's land that fits the criteria that we just described, uh, people will pay a lot for it. Um, I saw recently where in New Jersey, which is obviously New Jersey right next to New York, um, a huge distribution area because of the population that's there. Um, but it's an area that's been developed for a long time. And to get industrial land up there, the, the recent uh, top price that they, they heard was $2 million an acre. Uh, so That's a pretty penny. Yeah. That's, you know, an acre, again, is an acre is about the size of a football field. Uh, so, you know, for, for one acre, you know, having to pay $2 million and then you need, you need a hundred acre site to do something like this. That's a lot of money just invested in the land. So as I say that, that it, you are correct, that is something that people are trying to find, but, uh, economics will require them to have economics and availability. There's still going to be a lot of industrial around the perimeters, um, of, of major cities. Uh, just because of the availability uh, of uh, the land that is zoned for this purpose is there, and it's going to be it's going to be a trend that um, people are going to run into significant limits on. I mean, picture if you want to put 100 acres in the middle of Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> I mean, ha- there's there's an office building there. Wherever you want to be, there's an office building there already. So it's very difficult to to actually get to that. So the result will be that you have a lot of things on the perimeter there. I, I agree. Well, um, and, you know, Larry, I really appreciate your time and certainly sharing your expertise. And if anybody out there on our um, podcast listeners, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or to get connected with everything that's happening with Patillo? Well, um, the Patillo website is www.patillore.com. The R-E stands for real estate. So www.patillore.com and you know that'll open up you know uh, the vistas of what we do and who we are and and our team uh, which is a great team of professionals fantastic well everybody out there thank you for listening tuning in hopefully you found this episode insightful and now you understand a little bit more about what's shaping the industrial market in today's marketplace have a great week and we will see you next time You've been listening to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartergies. If you like this episode, please let us know by visiting aecmarketingpodcast.com, where you can learn more ways to position your brand and sell to owners. 